0: That's the lowest music stand I've ever encountered. <clears throat> get it on up here. So, kind of in the same boat with Jordan. I took my boys on a camp out Friday night, and so I sat in the smoke all night, and then I slept in a tent, and then I'm coaching football for them, and all three of them scored uh, touchdowns yesterday, and Eden ran the ball really good, so of course I had to yell a lot. So, uh, <clears throat> praise the Lord, there were some cough drops hidden in our van, and I found them. And so I think I'm going to be good. If you have a Bible, if you want to open to the book of 2 Corinthians, the book is 2 Corinthians. If you've been with us over the past couple of months, we have been going through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we ended it last week. And some of you are now like, okay, we're just jumping into part two. Kind of, sort of, not really. Um, When we were going through and planning the preaching series and we started talking about going through 1 Corinthians, uh, I mentioned to Fudd that um, I would really like for us to take at least just one week and spend a little bit of time in 2 Corinthians. Um, and, and the reason being, one, uh, it's one of my favorite books in the entire Bible. Over the past 10 years, I think I've studied 2 Corinthians 2 or 3 times. And every time, it has just been this huge blessing to my soul. It's been something God's used to encourage me and challenge me. Um, and it's just been so good for me. And so when a book affects you that much, you want to you help others in the same way. But I think secondly is it gives us a glimpse in what happened in Corinth after 1 Corinthians um, because they had a lot of stuff going on. So if you've been here with us and you've been going through these sermons with us, you'll understand that there were a lot of things happening in Corinth, and almost every single one of them was not good. Um, and so Paul is addressing all of these things, and we're almost kind of left with a, okay, so what'd they do? Did they listen? Did they not listen? Did things turn around? Is it Okay. Um, And 2 Corinthians helps us to get a little bit of that understanding. It seems that they did listen to Paul. Uh, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 2 that one of the reasons why he wrote, according to verse 8, um, verse 9, For this is why I wrote, that you might test to know whether you are obedient in everything. Um, And they were to be obedient. So it's good. So just so you know that part, they listened and things got better. Um, But the tone of 2 Corinthians is different from 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is speaking directly to questions they had and issues they had in the church. And if, you, if you're reading 1 Corinthians, you get the idea that Paul is very confrontational. I mean, there's no, there's no guess as to where he stands and what he thinks about these issues. He directs, directly hits them head on. And the thing is, when somebody is very confrontational, there's not as many words of encouragement, but a lot of words of correction, rebuke, and even bewilderment on Paul's part on what's going on there in the church. And these are the kind of words that would have made the Corinthians, at least in my thinking and understanding, this would have made the Corinthians just feel a little bit down. What are we doing? Are we getting anything right? Right? Is it really worth it? Are we really fighting for Jesus? They would have felt the weight of their sin and maybe even a sense of hopelessness. And I'm not saying that that was Paul's desire in 1 Corinthians. I don't think Paul came with 1 Corinthians with a hammer ready to just beat them down. But they needed rebuke, they needed correction. They needed to hear Paul's bewilderment because they were just living in simple ways all over the case and they were okay with it. And they needed to know that this was not the way that the church of God behaves. This was not the way that the church carries itself out. This is not the way that followers of Christ live their lives. But he knows that his words are heavy and they can fall on their hearts. But in in 2 Corinthians 2, he even tells them, hey, I didn't come to you because I know my visit would have been painful. He says face-to-face, it would have been painful. So instead of a face-to-face painful visit, I sent you a painful letter. Um, But the tone of 2 Corinthians is different. Paul is coming alongside them as a pastor. They've, They've heard the word. They've responded. Some of them are feeling this pain. They're enduring suffering. They feel the hopelessness and the helplessness. And Paul is coming alongside, and he's walking with them. He is encouraging them, and he's pushing them back to Jesus in every way. So what we're going to do is we're going to kind of look at that a little bit this morning. If you have your Bibles, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is where we're going to be this morning. We're going to work through 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And so what I'd like for you to do, if you have it, I'd like for you to stand. I'm going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 4, all 18 verses. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay, To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to that which has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so also we speak, knowing that he who raised Jesus, the Lord Jesus, will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence." For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends more and more, to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this light, slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's, let's pray. Father, I thank you for this word. I thank you for the hope that is in the gospel. And I thank you for the way that your word speaks to every area of our life. The things we like to talk about and the things we want to keep in the dark. The things that we share eagerly with others and the things that make us feel as though we're all alone. Lord, I pray that the encouragement to the Corinthians would be the encouragement to us and that we might follow hard after Jesus more and more because of the hope which you've laid before us. We love you and ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So for those of us that are followers of Christ, we too at times will feel this weight and this difficulty that the Corinthians, I believe, felt. We will feel our weaknesses as we try to follow Jesus. We will suffer. We will be opposed, sometimes by the people we love or by people who should be standing with us. We feel alone and we will all fail. Now, we don't talk about this a lot when we talk about the gospel. (laughs) Because the gospel is the good news, right? Christ died for us, we have hope in heaven, we will be made like him, things are going to be good. And when we talk about the good news of Christ, we speak boldly and highly of the hope in Jesus and the joy found in him. We speak of the love and we should. But as we're reading the scriptures, we can't deny the feelings of difficulty, a sense of little hope or a fog of failure that sometimes seems to drift over God's people. We don't want to talk about it because it doesn't seem like good news. But the question I've got this morning is, is it actually good news? Paul doesn't deny these realities in 2 Corinthians. He addresses them head on. And what he does is he takes our weaknesses and he takes our failings and he takes our shortcomings. And he takes them and he turns them back to Jesus. His strength, his comfort, his value, his grace, his supply... And he reminds us that God is not absent during our hardships, but God redeems every one of our hardships. And that is good news. That is really good news. Because I'll tell you what, I don't want a gospel that doesn't speak to the hard times. I don't want one that only works when things are great, and then when I'm hurting, has no hope for me. I don't want one that doesn't tell me how to get through Life when life seems like it's falling apart. Or a Savior who's not really sure about what's going on. But the gospel brings us a Savior who not only knows about our suffering, but has endured suffering on our behalf so that we might have life. The gospel addresses these things. Paul writes in Romans 5, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, not only do we rejoice in our justification, in our hope of the gospel. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Our difficulties can cause us to lose heart or to want to lose heart. And this morning I am sure that sitting in a room this size there are some of you who have lost heart or you're on the verge of losing heart. And for some of you, you may not have, but there will be a time in life when you will. What I want to do this morning is I want to lay out 11 encouragements. And some of y'all are freaking out because y'all are like, wait just a second. (laughs) If he spends this long on each one, that means we're going to be here for four hours. So no. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to spend 30 minutes on each one of these. But what I want to do is I want to show you that in these 18 verses, there are at least 11 things, 11 reasons why we as followers of Christ cannot lose heart. And what I want to say is that for everybody in this room, all 11 may not hit you where you are right now. But my guess is and my prayer is that God will take at least one of them and wherever you are right now, whatever you're dealing with, whatever you're struggling with, he will use it to shore up your heart, remind you of the hope that is in the gospel and empower you to walk forward in the next week, months and years in the hope of Jesus. So whether it's 11 or whether it's one, I pray that it would be an encouragement to you. So 11 encouragements. We're going to hit them. And then we're gonna move on because we ain't got all day. All right. First thing that I want us to see, and this is probably the one that I'll spend the most time on our ministry. Is an act of God's mercy. We see it in verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. That is one of two places where Paul talks about not losing heart in this passage. We see it in verse 1. We also see it in verse 16. So, we do not lose heart. So, this is obviously something Paul is very interested in. This word ministry that shows up in verse 1 here is used 10 times in the book of 2 Corinthians. The only other place that this word is used that many times in the entire New Testament is the book of Acts. And so this is very much an important word to Paul in the book of 2 Corinthians. And so part of it, he focuses on this word ministry and a good understanding of it, at least in one aspect, is verse 18 of chapter 5. All this, uh, verse 17, hold on, there it is, verse 18. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So when we hear the word ministry, a lot of times in our context, we think ministry, we think paid pastoral staff, or we think missionary, or we think somebody who has given as their vocation a serving of God. And what Paul is doing by using this word here, he also uses the word ministry later in 2 Corinthians to talk about the giving that the believers were doing for the saints in Jerusalem. Paul, uh Fudd mentioned last week, the fact that they were to set aside part of their giving, Paul was going to collect it and going to take it to Jerusalem to help meet the needs of the saint. Same exact word here. And what I think Paul is getting at, we've got the ministry of reconciliation, not the ministry of church staff, not the ministry of position. This is the, what we as believers have in our own sphere of influence for the gospel. So whatever your sphere of influence is, that is your ministry. Because you, in that sphere of influence, have opportunity to be an agent of reconciliation. So that means if you're on church staff, that might be your sphere of influence. That means if you're a mom, your kids might be your sphere of influence. That means if you're a college student, it could be your residence hall. That means it could be your job or it could be a club that you're a part of. It could be the fact that you're the president of the HOA and that's part of your sphere of influence. It could be the street that you live on. Wherever that is, God has placed you there and has given you an opportunity to be a minister of reconciliation. One who brings the hope of the gospel in the way that you speak and in the way that you live. Now why is that an encouragement? Because sometimes you feel like you have no ministry. Sometimes you feel like you have no, uh, no influence. Sometimes you feel like, yeah, but I don't have as big as what somebody else has. Maybe it's one person. Maybe it's three people. I, my heart's been burdened for moms in this one, so I'm just going to say this. And so this is not for everybody else to quit listening But, moms, I know that sometimes you're changing diapers and you're mopping floors, and you feel like all I do is spin around two little people who can't even understand half the words that are coming out of my mouth. I have no ministry. Can I tell you, where you are is a gift of God for you and for your kids and for your family. And when you feel like your life is insignificant, Or that you're not having an influence. Can I tell you? God in his goodness has given you that chance and that opportunity. And it is not insignificant. It is not second rate. It is not less than. Because God has chosen to give you that gift. So be encouraged. And this is encouraging because there are times that maybe you're an introvert and you feel like, I can't be used because you can't talk to crowds of 400 people and you can't get on a stage or you can't be the life of the party. But can I tell you, God has given you a sphere of influence and God wants to use that and it is a gift by God. And maybe you've poured yourself out in ministry for what seems like nothing and you think, That where I am and what I've given to, it doesn't matter. Can I tell you God has given that as a gift of his mercy to you. So when you begin feeling like it's insignificant, it doesn't matter, remember the one that gave you that ministry. Another encouragement is this we proclaim Jesus and not ourselves. There are going to be times that we are going to be rejected. Those times especially when we verbally share the gospel. And we see in verse 5, Paul says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. There's going to be times that people will reject the message. There are going to be times that people don't want to listen. There are times that people may make fun of us. There are many times we might even be close to losing our job because we've been vocal about who Jesus is and what he's done in our life. And the temptation is going to be to tweak the message, to change it up, to maybe say things that won't won't be as intense, There maybe won't be exactly what somebody needs to hear, but you're afraid of that. If you say that, they're not going to listen or they're going to reject you. And Paul has gotten to that right there. We've renounced disgraceful unhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. But by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves. We feel the rejection of the gospel personally. We feel it. And sometimes that keeps us from sharing the hope of Jesus. Because we're worried about the rejection. And we feel it personally. And that means we can also feel the acceptance of the gospel personally. Paul reminds us that we proclaim Jesus. We don't change the message. The world needs Jesus, not us. And so we hold high Jesus. We don't change the message. We don't hold it back. And when we are rejected, we remember they've rejected Christ and not us. Another encouragement is this, we see it in verse 6. Verse 6. Paul writes, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. The encouragement is this. God has performed a miracle in our hearts if we are followers of Jesus. So a couple weeks ago at, um, some of you know I'm the campus minister for the Baptist Collegiate Ministry here in town. If you don't know that, you know it now. Um, and we, were, um, we had a service a couple Thursday nights ago. And we were praying, we were asking God to draw college students to faith in Christ. And we were praying, we got a lot of people praying with us. And so that night, we presented the gospel, and four students trusted Jesus that night. And I was sitting down with our leaders the Sunday night afterwards, and this is what I told them. I said, we don't want to lose the fact that what happened that night was four miracles took place before our very eyes. That's not hyperbole. That's not metaphor. The Bible says that when someone is saved, they go from death to life. And I don't know about you, but anything that was dead and is now alive, that is a miracle. And so this is not hyperbole. When God works in the heart of someone, they were dead because of their sins and trespasses. And the Spirit comes alive and awakens them. To life, They go from death to life. And can I tell you, follower of Christ, that has happened in your heart. You were dead and God has miraculously worked in your life. Why is that an encouragement? God himself has personally brought you to life. He loves you and he is for you. And even if all of the world turns against you, And everything falls apart. God has brought you to life and he has given you his spirit as a down payment, as a guarantee that you will be with him forever. And you may not sense God working in your life. And you may not sense God doing anything. But when you go back and you consider your salvation, you can know that God has started work in your life. And God has done miraculous things For you. And this God who has done miraculous things for you is still for you. And he is still the same God. And he is still the one who brings life out of death. Just meditating on that melts our hearts and makes us soft to him. Another encouragement that Paul lays out for us is that God reveals his power in our weakness. Now this runs counterintuitive to our thinking. Maybe not yours, but it does to mine. Because I think that God shows himself powerful when I do something great. So when when I'm really smart, when I can make the best argument or if I can preach the best sermon or I can be the most friendly or I can do all these things and people look at me or we think about in our culture, man, if God would just save this really strong person or this really powerful person or this really popular person or this really rich person, if God would just save them, can you imagine all the stuff that God would do when God says, that's not the way I roll." I take these that nobody would think would do anything. And I'm going to use them to display how absolutely wonderful I am. And nobody's going to think it's because they're the strongest and the smartest and the most popular and got the best personality. Notice what Paul says in verse 7. But we have this treasure, the treasure of the gospel that God has spoken into our hearts and brought us alive. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Common, ordinary, pots that look a lot like the other one on the shelf to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Can I tell you, if you feel plain, if you feel like your life is just ho-hum, You've got nothing special to offer. You're not the best. You're not the smartest. You don't have anything. Can I tell you? This right here means you are set up for God to use you in a powerful way. And nobody's going to think you did it. They're going to say, man, look what God did. And that is an amazing thing. So when you feel like, well, I just can't get up and talk the way that people can, or I can't make those arguments, or I don't understand the way everybody does, or I can't do this. When you feel that down, take encouragement that God has said, I want to take the ordinary every day, and I want to use it powerfully because I want to display the greatness of who I am. And God may use you to show a lost and dying world the greatness of the power of Christ. And I'm not sure about you, but that's encouraging to know that God can use this broken, stumbling, failing man. Overcome my weakness to show his power. Paul, it says in uh, 2 Corinthians 12, we're real familiar with this. Paul said he had a thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan. Something that was just he struggled with. It was this, it was this very difficult part in his life. And he p- prayed three times that God would take it away. And God says... My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so what did Paul say? The next verse immediately. Therefore, I will boast all the more in my weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest upon me. We can be encouraged because God reveals his power in our weaknesses. So when you feel your weakness, don't forsake faithfulness. Run to Christ and pursue faithfulness because God may be about to do something amazing. Next encouragement is this. God guards us. Real simple. God guards us. Verses 8 through 9. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. The thing that is striking about these verses is not that God guards us from affliction, from being perplexed about what is going on and what is happening in life. He's not saying that God guards us from persecution or that God guards us from being struck down. But notice what Paul says. We are afflicted, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but we are not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but we are not forsaken. We are struck down, but we are not destroyed. These difficulties will come. They may come. They may be harder than others. For some of us, it may be almost overwhelming. But in all of this, we are secure in the hand of God. Our sufferings will not ultimately crush us. We may never know the reason for what is going on, but we will not be left in despair because we serve a good and holy and sovereign and righteous God. And even if we face hardships, even when the difficulties come, even when it feels like we have been thrown down and we are going to be crushed, we can have confidence that God is greater than all of these things. Paul says we face these, but they do not overcome us because we belong to Jesus. Another encouragement is this. Our suffering opens doors for the gospel to be shared. Look at verses 10 and 11. Always carrying around in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. Paul writes that our being given over to death is so that the life of Christ may be manifested in our bodies. Our response to suffering is a platform for the hope of the gospel. And I'm not talking about some glib and trite Facebook comment way. I don't, I'm not trying to disparage that necessarily. But what I am saying, as Christ sustains us in the midst of turmoil... As we are satisfied with him when others think we shouldn't be. And as we have hope when they don't think we should have hope, we have a platform because that doesn't happen. What is going on? Why do you still have hope? Why are you okay with not just giving trite answers to this? What is going on? Why are you still solid when your world is falling around? And Paul says we then have a platform for sharing the hope of the gospel, the hope of Christ. Because our hope is not in our circumstances. Our hope is not in our security. Our hope is not in our safety. Our hope is not in our comfort. Our hope is in Christ. And so even if those things are taken away, we've not lost our hope because we have Christ. And it's a platform. Now, my argument is not, please don't hear me saying God's, just, God's causing you to suffer because he wants you to witness more. That's not what I'm saying. I don't think that's what Paul's saying. I don't think that's what the Bible is saying. But I think what Paul is saying is in the midst of our suffering, there are opportunities to testify to the greatness and goodness of God and the hope of the gospel. So we can, have, we can, we can be encouraged because our suffering gives us opportunities and platforms to share the gospel. Another encouragement we get is that God will resurrect us. Verse 14. So look at verse 14. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. So we looked at 1 Corinthians 15 a couple weeks ago. Chris preached on that. And we talked to all, the whole chapter was about the resurrection. This kind of is a bookend to what we saw in uh Verse 6, where it talked about God causing that miracle of us to come alive in Christ. This is the completion of that salvation. We're being together with him. We'll be in his presence. We'll be satisfied by him. And do you want to know why this, I believe, that this is an encouragement? It's because it may never get better. In this world, it may never get better. Now, that, that's, a, that's a downer. Um, That's not those words we don't want to hear. There's lots of stories throughout history of people like Job that endured suffering and at the end of their life, things did get better. But can I tell you, we're not promised in this world that things will get better. We have brothers and sisters in Christ who are in prison right now because they're followers of Jesus and tomorrow they may be beheaded. The end of their life is not guaranteed that it is going to get better. The gospel is not. The gospel is not a message that says your suffering will end and you will be rich and you will be prosperous and you will be healthy. God may do that. But God may not do that. That is why I believe this passage is such an encouragement. Because. Even if in this life it doesn't get better, Jesus will come get us. He will raise us up. And even if it doesn't get better, Jesus is coming back for us. And even if the world falls apart, Jesus is coming back for us. And in the midst of earthquakes and hurricanes, Jesus will come back for us. In the midst of cancer, Jesus will come back for us. In the midst of persecution, Jesus will come back for us. And if we die, he's going to raise us up and take us with him. This is good when things don't get better. God will resurrect us. Another encouragement we get from this passage is that God receives praise and glory from others through our lives. Now, as I was writing this one, this one just kind of blew my mind a little bit. So look at verse 15. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. God uses our lives in big and small ways, some of which we never know, to encourage and strengthen others. And as he uses our lives, they are conduits for the gospel, our words for sharing, our love and serving, and our lives result in people recognizing God's goodness and grace, and as they receive these, they glorify Him and give thanks to Him. That means we become avenues for people to praise and worship God. God uses our lives. He uses us to encourage others, to share with others. So think about the person that maybe you weren't the one who led them to faith, but you walked with them. You gave them encouragement. You told them the hope of the gospel. You shared with them over and over again. They rejected you. They laughed at you. They spurned you. And then God causes them to come alive in Christ. Somebody else shares. And now all of a sudden they're worshiping God. And they're coming back to you and they say, God gave me such a gift that you didn't stop sharing with me, that you didn't stop loving me, that you didn't stop caring for me. And in the midst of that, those times when we felt so discouraged and felt so rejected, God redeems that and uses it as an avenue for his praise and for his glory. That is just crazy for me. That God has ordained praise and he's using my life and your life in the lives of other people to make that happen. What an encouragement to be an encouragement. What an encouragement to share. What an encouragement to be somebody who disciples others and helps them to know the word and know how to live for Jesus. What an encouragement when we have to be like Paul and go to someone who's following Jesus but is actually following themselves. And we have to lovingly but straightforwardly call them on the carpet and call them to repent. Because we don't like to do those things but God is going to be using us to turn them around so that they will praise and honor him and we will be a conduit of that. Our lives have purpose so far beyond the things that we know. I think that if God were to let us in on all the ways that he uses us, it would just be so much, it would blow our minds and he'd have to just take us to heaven right now. We are used in so many ways and we don't even realize it, but it's so many ways to draw people back to the glory of God. Another encouragement we get from this passage is in verse 16. It says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. God will sanctify us. Day by day, step by step, those of us who are following Jesus are being made more and more like him. Can I tell you? Maybe you guys don't. But I struggle with sin. And I hate it. I wish I could just stop. I wish that I was always thought the right way, said the right things, acted the right way. I wish it. I hate it. I hate the fact that it's there. But you know what's the most encouraging thing to me? Even in the midst of failing in sin is knowing that Jesus will sanctify me. Not that he might. Not that he could. He will sanctify me. One way or another, he is going to do it. And so what that does is that when we remember that our sanctification is as secure as our justification, it emboldens our souls to fight for holiness, to fight for it. Knowing that the war will be won, we have the strength for the battle we are facing and hope when we lose the skirmish. When we've failed 9,000 times, The gospel reminds us Jesus will sanctify us so we can get up to fight the 9,001st battle because he will work in our hearts. He will do it. He has promised us. Another encouragement we get, I believe this is number 10, eternal glory vehemently eclipses any earthly suffering. Eternal glory vehemently eclipses any earthly suffering. Now, we see this In verse 17, For this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paul is not, he is not making light of our affliction. He's not telling you to get over it. He's not saying that the things we are enduring aren't real. That they aren't painful. That they aren't disheartening. He's not saying that. But what he is saying is that he is rightly understanding the magnitude of glory we will have in our resurrected state with Jesus. Not the same glory as Jesus, but this is the glorification, the completeness and the fullness of our salvation. We have been made right with Christ in our justification, declared righteous. God is making us holy and righteous in our sanctification. And then one day he will complete it fully. And we will be glorified. And we will be with him. And we will experience him in a way we've never have on this earth. He will fully satisfy us in all ways. And when Paul thinks of the wonder and bliss of knowing that, he will never struggle with sin. He will be united fully with Christ. He will be with him forever. And there will be no more tear. There will be no more suffering. There will be nothing else that will go wrong. When Paul thinks about that and his fullness of life with Jesus... He says, in comparison, there really is no comparison. We have worth, value, and strength in Him, and we will fully know that one day, and the difficulties here will fade away. There is an eternal weight of glory. To me, this one goes hand in hand with what we spoke about with the resurrection. It may not get better, but it is not forever. It may not get better, but it's not forever. We will forever be with Jesus. The last encouragement I think we find in this passage is this. God uses suffering to turn our eyes to him. see in verse 18. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. God uses our suffering to turn our face to Him. And when we look to God, we don't see the face of an ambivalent or distant deity, but of a good and loving Father who is near and working all things for His glory and our good. Some of Paul's opponents in Corinth were saved. Because he faced suffering and hardship, he wasn't a true apostle. These guys that that Paul had written this letter, and they didn't like the letter that Paul wrote. I mean, let's just say, when you get called out on stuff, you don't like it. And so these guys were saying, you don't really have to listen to Paul because Paul's not really an apostle. You know how we know that? Look at his life. Look at the suffering that's gone on in his life. Surely, a man of God, wouldn't be going through all of that. It's actually probably a sign that God is against him and trying to shut him down, and Paul's just so hard-headed, he keeps on going with this nonsense. What Paul does is he goes to show in numerous ways that this is not the truth. And a, and a, and a reading of the Scripture shows this is not true. If you're a follower of Jesus and things are difficult, difficult circumstances in your life a difficult fight with sin feelings of failure feelings of insignificance feelings like god could never use you feelings like god doesn't want to use you feeling like what you do doesn't matter this doesn't mean that god doesn't care or that he can't or won't use you he's given us passages like second corinthians to Second Corinthians 4, to come alongside us and to strengthen us. I mentioned it earlier, but I think it bears reading. Who's believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shearers is silence, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? Stricken for the transgression of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the numerous, and he shall divide the spoil with the with the many, because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Christ was not immune. To suffering. Christ was not immune to rejection. Christ was not immune to all of the difficulties. And yet he bore our sin that we might be brought near to God. We do not have a Savior who cannot relate to us. We have, as the Bible states, an elder brother one who has been through it all, has endured it. And as our great high priest, he can sympathize with our weakness and he can encourage us and he can walk with us and he can empower us. And we would say with the scriptures, though he slay me, yet I will trust him for he is good and he is for you. So can I tell you this week, if you have been down? If you have been discouraged, if you feel like maybe God has walked away, if you feel like the place, the sphere of influence God has given you, you've just blown it or it doesn't really matter. Can I tell you God this morning is standing reminding you that in the gospel you are loved, you are redeemed, you are made whole. And yes, you are a jar of clay, but inside of you is the treasure of the gospel and God wants to use you to display the glorious wonder of his might in Christ. To the six-month-old baby, to the codgety old neighbor, to the hard-to-live-with roommate, to the co-worker, everywhere your sphere of influence, God has said, I want to use you because you are mine. I've redeemed you. And when hardship comes, and it will, even if it doesn't get taken away, Jesus will come for you. And I want to say this morning. You may be in this room and you're not a follower of Christ. You may know about Jesus. You may have heard of Jesus. Maybe you're coming to church because you want to be a better person and you hope that if you clean up your life a little bit, if you start acting a little better, if you stop cussing or you start doing some good things, maybe God will take away what's going on in your life. Can I tell you, the hope of the gospel is not make yourself a better person and God will give you something as if he is a cosmic vending machine and you put in a few quarters and he'll throw something out. The hope of the gospel is, is that we are all wrecked beyond repair. We are sinful at the very core of our being, and there's nothing we can do to get God to love us, like us, or accept us. But God does like us, love us, and accept us because of Christ. He sent him to die for us so that we might be redeemed, and we might have the hope of what we talked about today. So if you're not a follower of Christ, I beg you this morning, turn to Jesus Trust in the hope of the gospel. Turn from your sin. Trust Christ and Christ alone to make things right for you. We're going to turn now to a time of the Lord's Supper. And in the Lord's Supper, we celebrate and remember the death of Christ for us. But we also remember that he said to his disciples, That he wasn't going to drink the fruit of the vine again until he drank it with them in heaven. And so we celebrate the Lord's Supper as a reminder of what he has done, but also as a reminder that he is coming again. So if you're a follower of Christ, take a few moments. Allow your heart to be encouraged by the gospel. Maybe repent of any sin that you know is in your life. Pray for strength. If you're not a follower of Jesus, someone who has trusted in the hope of the gospel and has followed in obedience with baptism, we ask that right now you just observe, that you just watch um, as God displays the gospel for you. Jordan's going to come. He's going to lead us in a song, give us a chance to prepare our hearts to be ready to receive the Lord's Supper. And after the song, I'll come up and lead us. While it's going on, if you want to come to one of the tables and take the elements, and take them back to your seat, we'll take together as a family. Let me pray for us. And then Jordan will lead us. Father, it's hard to talk about difficult things. We live in a culture that does everything it can to remove any discomfort and to remove anything that would even cause us to think of any lack of security or lack of peace. And we we look at these opponents of Paul and we want to think, man, they're crazy. How could they think that? But God, if we're honest, many of us kind of think the same thing. That God is for us. Our life is just going to be easy and happy and we're never going to struggle. We're never going to suffer. But we know it's not true. So, Fathers, we seek not to ignore these things but to hit them head on with the hope of the gospel. I pray for my friends and my family who are here today. That as they are walking through hardships, that you would bolster their faith and you would encourage them in the hope of the gospel, that you would take this word and you would sink it deep into their hearts and their hope would be on Christ, not their ability to fix their situation, not in some new miracle drug, not in new whatever people might come up with, but their hope would be in you and that you would sustain us to be bold in our hope for the gospel. And as we celebrate together the hope of the gospel in the supper, turn our hearts even more closely to Jesus. We love you and ask it in his name.